This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. The Lenten season is upon us. Depending on when you're listening to this, you may have Fat Tuesday left to celebrate. If so, enjoy your king cake. Interested in a cultural debris excursion to Europe? We had a grand time in Genoa last year, and now is the time to contact me about our 2023 trips. In July, we have planned a week in beautiful Salzburg, home of Mozart, and a second week in Oberammergau and the Bavarian Alps. In October and November, we plan a week in Tuscany and a second week back to Genoa. Again, please let me know as soon as possible as these trips only accommodate very small groups for each week. You can email me at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Cultural Debris, I would ask you to consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cultural debris. There are different levels of support, and any support level is appreciated. Anyone, of course, can also please leave a review and a five-star rating on your podcast app. Our poem is by Malcolm Guite, Ash Wednesday. Receive this cross of ash upon your brow, brought from the burning of Palm Sunday's cross. The forests of the world are burning now, and you make late repentance for the loss. But all the trees of God would clap their hands, the very stones themselves would shout and sing, if you could covenant to love these lands and recognize in Christ their Lord and King. He sees the slow destruction of these trees, he weeps to see the ancient places burn, and still you make what purchases you please, and still to dust and ashes you return. But hope could rise from ashes even now, beginning with this sign upon your brow. My guest is Holly Ordway, the first returning guest on Cultural Debris. Holly and I discuss her most recent book, Tales of Faith, a guide to sharing the gospel through literature. Holly and I discuss the value of literature, receiving versus using stories, why reading fiction can be a dangerous act, and why so much modern Christian art is so bad. Plus, we get a preview of Holly's fascinating upcoming book. Please join me as I talk with Holly Ordway. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. It is a great pleasure. It is good to have you all the way from the great white north of Wisconsin, I believe. Indeed, where it is white and very, very cold right now. Well, uh, at the time of this recording, we are also expecting some Wisconsin-level coldness, uh, which is not particularly welcome. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take our wave of global warming as it comes, I suppose. Good opportunity to curl up with a good book, cup of coffee, cup of hot chocolate, you know, that sort of thing. 
Well, it will certainly be the weather for it, and uh, that, of course, uh, a a good uh, a, a good segue into why we are talking because uh, we're going to talk a little bit about maybe the sorts of things we could read and maybe encourage others to read as well. You are the very first uh, returning guest to Cultural Debris. We uh, we spoke all the way back on episode eight. Now we're in the thirties. It's hard to believe, but um, but I appreciate you being willing to subject yourself to it again. Well, coming and talking about good books with people who like good books, I mean, twist my arm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have been, uh, you've been not only reading good books, I'm sure, but also writing them. And um, we're going to talk about one of those today and then a, and, and another one that, that is in prospect. Uh, we're going to get maybe a little, a little teaser out of, out of you about that. I wish, do, however, to congratulate you about the last book, which is what we talked about back in episode eight, and I would encourage people to return to that interview and listen to it again or listen to it for the first time. But you, you uh, wrote Tolkien's Modern Reading, which we discussed, and you were awarded the 2022 Mythopoic Scholarship Award for that book. So congratulations. Thank you very much. So tell me a little bit about that award. Well, um, the Mythopoic Society is um, it's a, a society for um, encouraging scholarship into the work of, you know, Lewis, Tolkien, George MacDonald, all of the writers who, who explore sort of mythopoeic literature, fantasy, science fiction, um, you know, that intersection of myth um, and literature. And, uh, and so the, uh, the scholarship award in Inkling Studies is the one that I was awarded. Um, and it, you know, is for a contribution to the scholarship of, you know, authors in this field. And I was so honored, I am so honored um, to have received this award because it's a pretty star-studded list of people who've gotten it, you know, in the past. Um, Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, um, John Garth's um, Tolkien and the Great War, uh, Tom Shippey of Rolling Flagger. I mean, it's it's an honor to be amongst um, these scholars. And and I'm just, I'm really appreciative that my work has, um, has been able to make a contribution uh, to the field. Well, congratulations again. I feel like they might they might need to to come up with like a, a catchy name for it. You know, you, the myth, mythopoic is doesn't really roll off the tongue. I feel like they need something like you know like Oscar or Emmy. Maybe like they could call them the Jack or something like that. Um, that that people could hold up a statue and after do they have a red carpet? kind of ceremony or anything? Well, alas, I couldn't actually make it to the uh, the uh, event where they had okay. it because I was in England at the time. Um, I was invited, of course, but I, I couldn't make it. Um, so there might be a red carpet, but I, I they do give a really jolly nice um, award. It's a lion. It's it's called an oh, Aslan. Nice. So it's, it's... Oh, well, there you go. See, they could, the, the, you've, we go to the Aslan Awards. That's, I like that. That's that's nice. So... Well, well, congratulations. That Thank I'm you. sure looks uh, looks very uh, imposing uh, on the shelf. Indeed, it does, and it it weighs about thirty pounds. I think so. Oh, wow. <laughs> it feels that way anyway. And it also, might become uh, might become a, a weapon in a in a murder mystery or something. At that, at that, <laughs> Hopefully at that not. <laughs> well, we are uh, we're here to talk about uh, another book, uh, probably uh, soon to be award winning in, in various fields. Uh, but this is Tales of Faith, a guide to sharing the gospel through literature, and uh, this really goes along with um, with your role um, at 
at Houston Christian University as a, as an apologetics uh, professor because we're we're looking at really a side of apologetics perhaps that is not often explored. Yes, um, and this book in particular, and I dedicated it to my students, past, present, and future, um, because this book uh, really came out of the eight years that I was teaching full-time at Houston Christian. Um, so I, I was a full-time professor there uh, for eight years, and I now um, work for Word on Fire, um, but I continue to have an affiliation with uh, HCU as the visiting professor of apologetics, uh, which is which is really pleasing. They're, they're, it's a really good program. Um, so this book, Tales of Faith, it came out of my my teaching of um, the cultural classes in the MA and apologetics program there, um, because these are classes that helped our students, our, our master's students um, in the cultural apologetics program to understand how do we present the faith? How do we engage um, in effective, compelling, helpful presentations of, of the gospel, of the Christian message? In our modern culture, when so often people are, are just not listening, they're not understanding. Um, and in an earlier book that I, I, I wrote a few years ago, um, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, um, I sort of set out kind of a theory of how we might engage in using the imagination. Uh, and so Tales of Faith is kind of the practical handbook because it's drawing on a lot of the, of the actual literary text that I was using. Um, and in my teaching, a big part of that was to help students to really think about, you know, why do we believe the things we believe? What are the what are the ways that our beliefs are reflected in the culture? Because you've got to understand how culture works if you're going to shape it. Um, we can't just go around shouting true things. They might be true, but if we just go out shouting them into the void, and it's not going to really help anybody. Uh, we have to ask the question: If people are not listening, why are they not listening? If people are not understanding, why are they not understanding? We can't just, you know, <laughs> shout louder at people um, because they're not understanding. So my particular expertise is in literature. And so I found, you know, throughout my, my career as a, as a teacher and then as an apologist, that literature provides a really good entry point and a really good place to have the kinds of discussions, the kind of engagement that allows us both to understand that cultural context, why are things the way they are, but also to dig into how do we help people understand what we're trying to convey. Now, all of this sounds very abstract, um, but we can get into some specific details if, if you'd like. But basically, Tales of Faith is sort of a walkthrough that says, okay, here's the concept. Now, let me take you through you know, five works of ancient literature, five works of medieval literature to show you how this actually helps us to share the gospel. Yeah, let's talk let's talk a little bit about that concept because in in the early pages the introduction sort of setting the foundation of what you're what you're doing in the book. You write we can't convey the reality of goodness, truth and beauty by uh, traditional argument alone. So you're just um, we might think of of uh, traditional apologetics, you know, arguing, like you were saying, sort of arguing true things. Those are those are useful things to do. But but you say that that's not the only way we can do it. As an apologetics professor, why isn't it the only way to do it? Why isn't isn't liter how how do we do literature that way? I guess. Well, when you ask why isn't it the only way, it's because of what human beings are. We're not just floating intellects. 
Um, we have the human faculty of reason, which is very important, but that's not the sum total of our humanity. We also have emotions, um, which are an important part of our experience. We have physical bodies. Um, we have the will, um, we are volition, and we also have the capacity that the human faculty of imagination and imagination is in fact a, a human faculty. It's the meaning making faculty. It's that faculty of our, of our being, of our human um, being that takes in all the data from, you know, that we, that we experience and creates meaningful images that the um, reason can then act upon. And then the reason gets this image and is able to say, okay, this is true, this is false, this is partly true. And then the will can say, what am I gonna do about it? So let me give you an example um, that will illustrate what I mean. So I don't know if you ever had the experience of you're going to say to um, you know, an airport to pick somebody up, um, you, you arrive at baggage claim and there's all these people wandering around and you know, okay, well, I'm, I'm here to pick up Holly Ordway. She's gonna give a lecture at my university. And I've, I've been told, you know, she's not very tall. She has long blonde hair. I'm gonna look for somebody who fits that. And you're looking around, you see movement, you see patterns, you see colors, and then you see some, some data that you think is, is, you know, okay, there's blonde, there's, there's a certain pattern of movements. Um, that's data. And then your imagination pulls it together and says, ah, that's a human, that's a human figure. That is the imagination pulling together color, movements, shape into a picture that says, ah, this is a, this is a human person. And it's, I think the person I want. And then the reason can judge, okay, I should say, Hey, Holly, and then go from there. Now, the interesting thing is that First of all, the imagination has to pull that data together to make a meaningful image, because otherwise you just look in a blur and you don't know oh, all this people, people, where's the person I'm looking for? But also the imagination creates a meaningful image that may or may not be accurate. I'm sure you've also had the experience of, hey, oh, oh, uh, yeah, I'm actually, I'm, <clears throat> I'm waving at the person behind you, really. Oh, oh right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Or even you say, oh, that that's there she is. And it turns out to be, I don't know, a mop that's been turned upside down. And it's not actually a human being at all. Like, well, that was embarrassing. So the point here is that the imagination is that human faculty that creates the image that then the reason makes decisions about its truth or its falsity. Um, and it's always operating. It's always operating all the time. We, we can't function as human beings without the imagination. Now, that broad, wide-ranging idea of the imagination is not what most people think about. They think of imagination, they think of you know, made-up stories and fantasies and things that are not true. But that's part of our problem, is that we've kind of limited and constrained our understanding of the imagination, and therefore we don't tend to it. We don't nurture it. Um, and so the imagination can become sort of stunted. It can go wrong. Um, all sorts of things can, can happen where it's not being nurtured and trained and fed to give meaningful, rich, important images to the reason to work with. So I, I think sorry. I think that's a, a very good point. Let me let me interject briefly. But I think that that's a really good point because we do, you know, we, we do focus a lot and there's a lot of emphasis on sort of training the, training the mind um, to think in sort of systematic and abstract ways. Uh, you may, uh, you know, you may play 
Wordle or do a crossword or do Sudoku. Those are all sort of games that we've created that are supposed to be good for us to help us think better, right? I mean, they're enjoyable to some degree. Sometimes <laughs> Sudoku can be a little trying, but um, but but they're you know it, you do this and you're going to be uh, you know you're going to have a sharper mind. But we don't really. We don't really have a, an emphasis on you need to read a poem today. Um, you should read a short story. You should read this novel. We don't. Uh, we don't have that emphasis because those those things are seen, I think, sort of popularly, uh, and maybe even from the dominant intellectual uh, mindset uh, that those are sort of frivolous type things that they're not that they're not there to make you think more clearly, but, but you're saying quite the opposite. Yeah. It's, we, we really need an emphasis on this because, you know, and it's really important that we don't make this into an either or because it's a both and um, because training the reason, being able to think clearly is so important. It really is. But in order to think clearly in a, in a useful way, you have to have something to think about. Um, and I would give the analogy of, you know, if you're trying to train someone to be a chef, you know, or, you know, a good home cook, you, you could learn all sorts of techniques about, you know, handling the knives and, you know, blanching and stewing and, you know, seasoning and all those things. But if the only materials that you provide are low quality, you know, very processed foods, you know, um, you know, squishy white bread and, you know, bland you know, bland, mushy vegetables, uh, you know, whatever you make with these great skills is still going to be not very nutritious, not very tasty because you haven't got anything good to work with. So you, it really is important to have the skills because a, a bad, a bad cook can spoil good food. You could give really great ingredients to somebody who, you know, boils it to death and it's mush and it's, it's you know, not even nutritious or tasty. So in this instance, you know, the brain training is kind of like the, the chef skills, the, you know, the, the technical skills and the imaginative component is sort of the raw materials. What do we have that gives us things to think about? Um, and that's what we need both of them. We need to be nourishing the imagination so that we, when we come to think about something, we've got ideas that actually have some heft and some substance to them. Because for instance, most contemporary discussions about the existence of God, if you just randomly go out and, and talk to somebody, they're usually, frankly, pretty pointless because there's this sort of thinness about the idea of God. Oh, I can't possibly believe in God, old man in the sky, you know, going to blast us if we say a bad word. I can't believe in that God or, oh God, just, you know, it's just a made up thing to control us. And then like, well, what do you even do with that? You know, obviously there are arguments against this, but the idea that the other person might have of God, it's, they're not being disingenuous. This is really what they've got, but it's so shallow. It's like they got a Twinkie rather than a right. hearty loaf of bread. Um, you can't make an nutritious sandwich out of a Twinkie, you know? So the problem is that you have to kind of step back and say, wait a second. Well, what do we even mean by the idea of God? Um, you know, those ideas that you have of God, I don't believe those ideas either. Um, and so when we finally have a robust understanding of this 
this idea of God, you know, as, as being, as creator, as the ground of all being, as goodness, truth, and beauty. Now, that doesn't mean that this person accepts those ideas by any means. But if the person actually has a meaningful and rich concept, so there's something to, you know, kind of dig into, then, first of all, they're going to be more interested because, frankly, the stereotype idea of God is pretty boring. You know, this idea of God as sort of a vague spiritual force or like, yeah, it's, it's not very interesting. Why would you want to talk about it? But when you really get into the, you know, the fully full, rich mystery of the Christian understanding of God, you might still think, yeah, well, that's pretty weird. I don't know if I believe that. But you'll have something worth thinking about. And then yeah. you can have the conversation. You know, I, I you, you raise a good point there is that in that we aren't as, as a society and and uh, I'll include myself in this and in that, you know, I'm not always feeding my brain the best stuff. Right. And, you know, we can sometimes have junk food and it's OK. But in order to in order to even think on these levels we have to we have to pour in some some nutritious stuff that doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be bad or boring but when we um if 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 i tackle uh if i pull off shakespeare off the shelf and i start reading a play but i but i haven't been doing that and i'm not accustomed to doing that it's going to be it's going to be quite a bit of work for me to get through that, right? I mean, it's not something that's going to just be easy for me. Uh, yet the the end result is good. Sometimes we have to we have to kind of build our our intellectual muscles to appreciate a lot of these things and even think on this level. It's not a it's not a necessarily an easy on ramp. You know, that's a that's a great analogy. You know, the idea of using your intellectual muscles or your imaginative muscles. You know, because especially if, if we've been watching, you know, a lot of a lot of television and there are some great television programs. I watch television. I've got favorite shows. You know, I watch films. But if we've only been receiving images and not reading anything that creates them, the imaginative muscle can be pretty weak as well. And I think it's a funny thing um, that with the imagination um, and with reading or even with intelligent, thoughtful viewing of films and television, um, it's as if we expect people to either have it or they don't have it. And then if you then if you don't, if you you know take Shakespeare, I love Shakespeare, but if you pull Shakespeare off the shelf, yeah, you're going to be intimidated. You'll probably read about a page and you'll give up. Um, and that's quite natural. I can understand why that would happen. Um, but people will then just, they will just give up. But I compare that to, you know, if you want to do a sport, you know, you go out there and you, you know, you start playing basketball with your friends and you're, you know, a little tired after the first five minutes and you, you miss your first shot. I, I don't think most people will just say, oh, well, clearly I can't do basketball ever. I'm just never going to pick it up again. They'll say, oh, well, I'm pretty out of shape, you know, or, hey, I better get some tips from my friend who's, who's a better basketball player than me. And so we have this idea when it comes to sports that, you know, oh, well, naturally it's going to, there's going to be some, some effort, some practice. Um, I'm not going to be perfect at it right away. I'm going to have to get stronger. Um, and then you work at it and you are able to get to the point you start enjoying it. It's exactly the same with reading. Um, especially with reading sort of the more challenging older books, 
um, which is exactly why I go into that um, in Tales of Faith. There's a whole section on basically building up your muscles for attention. Because, you know, if you, for instance, the, you know, the Dream of the Rude, it's a, it's a uh, medieval poem in translation, wonderful poem. How do we get something out of it when we, when we read this poem about the crucifixion? Um, well, you start small. You, you read, you know, a few lines even um, until your attention starts to waver. And then you kind of give yourself a rest. You think about it. Um, and there are all sorts of other things that you can do to kind of scaffold your attention and, and build it up. But one of the things I just really tried to emphasize in the book is this note of encouragement. Um, if you if you pick up Dante's Divine Comedy and start trying to read it all the way straight through, you know, I have a feeling you'll probably stall out. I did <laughs> when I started doing that for the first time and the second time and the third time. <laughs> you know, so I've I've tested these strategies. And then Well, and you even make the point that that Dante isn't your favorite, that that's not you talk about this idea of of uh, appreciation versus enjoyment. Some things we enjoy, right? Exactly. You might love Shakespeare, but you might not love Dante. But that doesn't mean Dante isn't worth reading or isn't worth appreciating. Exactly. And I, I think, too, that people can be intimidated by the classics. They feel like they have to love them all. I've seen people kind of get this shocked expression on their face when I said, I actually don't particularly like Dante. Um, like, what? How, how can she do this? Can I check her, you know, her credentials? Is she really an English professor? <laughs> like, no, Dante is a phenomenal poet. He's one of the great poets of the Western canon. Um, powerful poet. Just, I don't love him. And I find the Divine Comedy a, a bit of a hard go. I, I myself, if I'm going to read it, and I've, I've taught it, you know, I've, I've read it many times. I got to take it in segments. Um, it's not a it's not a poem that I can just sit down and just you know lose myself in, and that's okay. That is totally okay. And I want to encourage people to just you know try stuff out, dip into it, learn, strengthen your muscles of attention so that you actually can stay with something for long enough to know whether you like it or not. Um, but also that difference between appreciation and enjoyment is really helpful. Um, because you can appreciate something, you know, maybe, maybe enjoy a few bits of it and see the value of it, maybe get a lot of spiritual intellectual, um, gain from it and still say, but this really isn't something that is amongst my favorites. You know, you, you talk, getting back, you mentioned earlier, get the, the, the food analogy and, uh, and you talk about this some, uh, in the introduction to the book, the idea of, uh, you know, you're you're encountering a new cuisine, for example. Maybe you're traveling, uh, and even say you're traveling to a maybe a non-Western country, uh, Asia or Africa or somewhere, which has a completely different cuisine foundation. You know, our immediate reaction is to sort of recoil, turn our nose up, that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that it's not great cuisine. Or if you go to a to a you know Michelin rated restaurant, what they're serving may not be what immediately appeals to you, but that doesn't mean it's not actually good or great. We're just not exposed to it. We just don't know how to deal with it, and and that happens to us a lot in literature. I think. Oh, absolutely, and it's interesting because those two things are are so the two examples you gave you know are slightly different, um, but related because 
the unfamiliar cuisine, um, especially you're going to like, I'm going to try Thai food. I'm going to try Chinese food. I'm going to try, you know, some, an Indian curry, um, et cetera. It's unfamiliar. And as human beings, we gravitate towards the familiar. This is natural. This is not a bad thing. Um, but we have to recognize that unfamiliar is not the same thing as bad. Um, and to allow ourselves to think, okay, I'm going to enter into this new thing. It, it's not going to taste the same as other familiar things. I need to, I need to appreciate it for itself and not for what it isn't. And that ability to enter into what is actually being given to you on its own merits, um, is really important for reading literature, uh, especially any literature that is outside of our, our time period or outside of our cultural um, expectations or, 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 you know, habits. Well, what am I being given here? Let me try and enter into it, into, into my, into the author's terms. And then I can start to make some assessments and only then can you say, okay, well, actually, you know, this, this is not a well-prepared dish. It's, it's gone off. It's spoiled. It has, you know, some bad ingredients in it. Uh, or, oh, okay, well, this is, this is just using some unfamiliar spices, but it's, you know, it's, it's well done. So that's part of the experience of, of reading literature to be able to try and understand what is this on its own terms and then being able to say, well, okay, is this good? Is this nourishing? Um, so that's that's part of why I chose in Tales of Faith to focus only on ancient and medieval literature. I, I Dante's Divine Comedy is the latest that I go, and because I think we kind of need practice in being able to enter into that um, experience, because you you don't you don't learn <laughs> new cuisines, you know, just by saying okay, I'm gonna like this instantly. You you kind of have to you kind of have to get a flavor of it. You kind of have to understand where it's coming from. And I wanted to give people the chance to, you know, get the flavor of a handful of different dishes. So you can say, oh, oh, I, I kind of see what it's like to enter into something that's quite different than what I'm maybe used to. You use a term uh, in the book that, that applies to this. That's sort of what we're talking about. But, I, but I'd like for you to talk about it a little bit more, and that is the, the idea of, of intellectual hospitality, that we sort of got to, to be hospitable with our minds. And I feel like we live in a time, uh, to use common expressions like PC or woke or however you want to term it, where intellectual hospitality, particularly intellectual hospitality towards that which is ancient or old, uh, is something that is is seen more and more rarely. It's looked down upon because these people didn't know what we know clearly and understand the, you know, the, the, the right things like we clearly understand them. How do we overcome that? How do we open ourselves up to be intellectually hospitable? Well, first, I think, you know, just recognize the importance of it. Um, and I'll make, and my, my approach to intellectual hospitality has really been shaped by the work of Diana Glyer. She's a scholar at Azusa Pacific who's really done a lot of great, great work on this. This idea of being able to come to the table, um, kind of like, you know, you're at the dinner table and just have this conversation. And I want to emphasize, you know, that it's this problem of lacking intellectual hospitality is equally present 
on what we might call both the right and the left. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's right. I, mean, I just think it's really important to emphasize. It, it comes across in slightly different ways, but it's a, it's a universal problem um, because on the one hand, you can have a sort of intellectual you know, lack of hospitality in the ways that you mentioned by looking at the past and saying, oh, well, those, those people, they didn't know what we know now. But also another way of being sort of intellectually inhospitable is to project onto um, those old authors what you think that they said, like, oh, well, these authors affirm all of these things, which I believe in. And so that's, that's, that's great. Well, maybe they did and maybe they didn't. And what was their context? Um, because projection can go, you can project either negative or positive things onto, onto what you're reading. And both, wh whether it's negative or positive, what you're projecting, the projection becomes a, a screen. It becomes a block. So you're not really engaging with that author at all. You're engaging with a sort of, you know, stereotyped figure where he just kind of illustrates what you want him to illustrate. So intellectual hospitality means really entering into, well, what is this author showing me um, on his or her own terms? Not what I expect, not what I want or hope or fear I'm going to get from this author, but what is this author giving me? And then, of course, we have to make judgments. I mean, there are things that we genuinely do understand better um, and have moral advancement from some of the ancient writers. Uh, well, I hope so anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, but we have to be able to understand that mindset. Um, and there are many things that we can learn from them because they can show us then where are our blind spots? You know, you know, 500 years from now, what will people be looking back to us and saying, oh man, I can't believe they thought that. So this intellectual hospitality really then becomes a, a kind of a, a conversation with the authors, not just sort of, you know, vampirically sucking them dry of the things we want to take from them, more projecting onto them and making them sort of stand-ins for our ideologies, but saying, hey, let's have this conversation, let's have this dialogue. And of course, you know, they they speak in the, in the words of the text, um, they can't respond directly to us, but we can enter into that and say, well, how does that help me see my own present situation better? Um, and then how can I, how can I learn from them? You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. You reference C.S. Lewis in, in this context, talking about using versus receiving a text. And, and I think I want you to talk a little bit about that, but I, I also think that a lot of times the reason why people sometimes avoid imaginative literature, um, whether it's novel, play, poetry, whatever, myth, legend, um, is because it's harder to manage. You can't necessarily control it. You don't know what what somebody might read and get out of that thing. You know that you, if I have if I have a sort of straight apologetic type text. It's more controllable, but um, imaginative literature starts triggering people's imagination, and you never know—you never know where that's going to go. Exactly, um, and that you know, and that's you really put your finger on something important, Alan, because this this desire for control is very prevalent, and I, I do think it's at the heart of a lot of fear of, of literature. Um, 
we want to control, we want people, we want people to think the things that they should think, react the way they should react. But also I think it can come from a deep um, uncertainty in, in the reader themselves, who's afraid, what might I think? Maybe I will think something that I don't want to think. Um, and so that that's another element in this sort of this, this fear um, element. We can come back to that in a minute, but to Go to C.S. Lewis. Um, yes, C.S. Lewis is hugely important in my developing this approach. Um, his book, An Experiment in Criticism, is where he explores this idea of using versus receiving literature. And it's such a helpful distinction because when we use literature, as he puts it, we, we have something that we want to get out of it and we go to it for that and we get it and we're done. Um, and receiving literature is what I've been talking about, the sort of entering into the experience. Now, it's not wrong to use literature. Um, and it, certainly it better not be because I've written a whole book kind of explaining how to do that. <laughs> it tells what it does. But even on a, on a more sort of simple level, like if I'm, if I'm flying, if I'm taking a trip on a plane, um, and I want to bring a book to read in the plane, which I always do. Actually, I usually bring about four because you never know. Um, well, I yes, I I completely sympathize with yeah. that. But when I bring a book, I I don't bring a book that I want to um, really engage with deeply because I know there's going to be so many distractions and there's you know they're rattling through with those service trays and there's the noise and I'm going to be interrupted just as I get to a good chapter. So I choose usually something like a murder mystery, um, which will be diverting. Um, you know, good enough to be capturing my interest, but not so compelling that I that I'm going to be bothered that I haven't really attended to the nuances of their prose style. So in that sense, I am using literature for a purpose to help me to have a more relaxed um, travel experience. That is perfectly acceptable. Um, as perfectly fine. Same thing as then as a teacher, if I'm going to say take something like Beowulf, which is one of the texts in Tales of Faith. And I want to help my students appreciate the idea of sin and virtue. Well, I am using the text of Beowulf to help illustrate those things. So using is, is an element we, we, can, we can legitimately do. But what Lewis is warning us is it's very bad if we only approach literature this way, um, because then we're going to be missing out on so much. And eventually, even the using of it will not really get us really anywhere. So for instance, the only reason that I'm able to use texts like um, they have in, in, the, in this book, like Beowulf or the Divine Comedy, is because I have in fact received them um, and entered into them. And insofar as I am an effective teacher, I want to help my students also to get into that, that receptive mode um, along with sort of stepping out of that every now and then and saying, oh, I see how this connects. So again, it's that both and. But the problem is that we tend to default to using. Um, and it that comes back to this idea of control again. Christians in particular, I think, tend to default towards using literature because they want to make sure that we're getting the right message. Um, like, okay, we don't want to <laughs> want to make absolutely clear this is this is the good point to get out of it. Um, and it can really drain all the joy out of the story to begin with. And then you're left saying, well, why didn't you just give me a five point apologetics presentation? What was right. the point of this? <laughs> well, and you know, you're using 
uh, obviously, since you, you pointed out that, that Dante is the most recent thing you use, a lot of what you're using uh, are pagan, uh, pre-Christian uh, writings. And obviously, those contain all sorts of things that uh, that that might uh, that might let loose some some sort of uh, improper approach or um, different way of thinking, right? That we and how are we going to manage that? How are we going to you know? Maybe I'm just to to use uh, I guess imaginative literature i'm opening a pandora's box if i'm if i'm going if i'm going to use these things in any kind of apologetics way because again you're you're kind of arguing here these are a, these are good apologetics tools and i don't want to make that sound you use rather than receive but these are ways that we can help reach people and ourselves too um but yet there are sometimes inconvenient things in them. Yes. Um, and that's, that's kind of fun <laughs> because it might surprise a few readers that, you know, this book is called Tales of Faith, a guide to sharing the gospel through literature. And one, almost half of the book, well, okay, maybe more like a third, um, is pagan literature. <laughs> These are people who did not know Christ. How is this in this book? Um, and that's really on purpose. Because there's so many good things we can get out of this engagement with with you know pagan literature or pre-Christian literature in general. I chose only to focus on the Greeks um, in my selection because I had limited space. Um, but the principles hold true for all non-Christian literature, ancient or or modern. Because for one thing, you know, we, as we know, you know, from the Book of Romans, you know, God has made Himself known to all people. This is the concept of natural theology. Everyone can have an awareness of the existence of God and certain things about him just by observing the created world and our own experience as beings. So even these ancient writers, these pagans writing long before, you know, the birth of Christ without any connection whatsoever to what God was doing with the ancient Israelites with no idea they still had access to things that are true, um, things that are true about God. Um, and of course, they don't have a complete picture, but the things that they got right are genuinely right. And this is something, you know, that the Catholic Church recognizes that, you know, a truth is true, regardless of who, who notices it. Um, and I think this helps to address a really deep underlying um, apologetics issue which is people, they think, well, either all religions are true, um, which is logically incoherent because they say different things, or none of them are true. Um, and, you know, well, if Christianity is true, are you saying that all of these other religions are 100% false? Well, unfortunately, that's precisely what a lot of Christians do. They say, oh, well, Christianity is true. Therefore, every other religion is false in every single way. And that is actually not the case because they understood certain things that actually are genuinely true. And those become touch points where we can say, well, here's where they were on the right track. Here's where they were drawing closer to God. Here's where they got it right. Here's where they got off the track. Um, so by engaging with something like the Greek myths, um, which is one of the things that I do in Tales of Faith, we can sort of practice that, that, that sense of discernment, which we need so badly in helping people today who are very muddled. People are very muddled and confused 
and I understand it's a they're they're given a muddle. They're given confusing, mixed, unclear messages. I, I have tremendous sympathy for all these sort of confused people. Of course, they're confused. How could they not be confused in our culture? So if we engage in a charitable way, in an intellectually hospitable way with, say, the Greek myths, we can say, okay, let's tease out those things that are helpful and let's identify the points where they got things wrong, Um, not blaming them for getting the things wrong. How would they know? But discerning. And that habit of mind is going to help us a lot. Ancient literature I like to read. This is one of the, the things that I you know enjoy. I don't have to necessarily force myself to do it. I like to read the Stoics. Uh, and it's interesting. It always strikes me when I come across something that they express that is noticeably unchristian, right? That That... that that they're saying something, they're writing some truth that, well, I can see why they would think that, and generally I'm sympathetic to their worldview. However, they've expressed something here that their reason has led them to a point where it runs directly against what we now know as revelation, Um, and that forces me to, to work out those things, right? I mean, I don't necessarily consciously sit down and think, well, let's parse this out, but it it does usually, you know, strike me. And I think a lot of times with people who maybe are not actively Christian, that if they read some of the ancient writers, that they too will be struck, maybe not consciously, but at times with how they are unchristian because they're swimming in Christian waters whether they know it or not, and usually they don't know it, but they just assume certain things uh, that that really are from a Christian worldview that they just kind of accept, but the ancients did not. Yeah, and you know, and that can be really a helpful sort of setting the stage for thinking more deeply about what is it that you don't like about the statement or, or what is it that you find attractive or perhaps a little troubling? But but even, I mean, honestly, C.S. Lewis wrote about this somewhere that he said that, you know, it would actually be really great if everybody were, were all these non-Christians were actually pagans because the pagans were a lot closer to Christianity than contemporary, (laughs) you know, modern people. He was absolutely right. Um, You know, what we have today is I, I, the phrase has been used by different people in different ways, but I I call it a post-pagan um, culture, because, you know, post-pagan and post-Christian, because we can't go back to being pagans, because the pagans were um, people who, before they, they had any encounter with, with Christianity, the, you know, making, making sense of the world as they, as they, as they experienced it, um, and discerning, insofar as they could, the movement of God in it. And today, you know, we don't really have a pagan sensibility. We have a kind of post-pagan, post-Christian, been there, done that, kind of chaotic rubble of of every everything, which doesn't cohere. It, it's just a big mess. So if actually people went back and started reading the pagans and, and actually became genuinely pagan, it would actually make um, apologetics and evangelization loads easier because then That's they would kind have of a, a Testertonian kind of outlook, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, because then you then have a coherent philosophy um, 
that you could then engage with. Um, but right now it's like science, it can be like trying to engage with the jello because there's, there's no, there's no there, there. <laughs> yeah. The, the pagans, right. The pagans were, uh, had the advantage over us in that they genuinely were, were seeking out divine truth. They didn't have access to all of it, of course, because ultimately there are things that we can only gain through revelation and all the ultimate revelation, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ. But they were trying to figure it out. They recognized that it was a there was value to that, and that as a human, that it it was incumbent upon us to 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 seek to know it. Um, but people don't really have that today. They don't have that motivation. They don't have that thought. Doesn't cross their mind. So that's part of the reason why it's it's kind of refreshing to go back and to read, you know, the ancient writers because of that very quality that you've you've just been saying, Alan. Um, and I think that's another reason again why why I included these selections in Tales of Faith because, you know, they're they're great stories. I mean, the the ancient writers. I mean, you know, we've got. Um, you know, the Greek myths are fantastically compelling. You know, the Odyssey, the Homer's Odyssey, this epic story of, you know, Odysseus trying to get home, okay, you know, Oedipus Rex and, and the, the whole sorry saga of, of, you know, King Oedipus. I mean, they really had great insight into human nature um, and the human experience. And there's a kind of a sharpness and clarity to it sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's, almost frightening because their worldview could be pretty stark. Um, and, but there's a, there's a clarity to it that brings the human experience to us so that we start thinking about it um, and start seeing it and feeling it. And that's good for us. That's, that's good for readers to do, uh, to be really engaging with what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to struggle with these, with these big issues? Right. If we, if we are, being truly hospitable intellectually, uh, it, it it does us well to transport ourselves back to these times. You know, of course, Lewis um, Lewis talks about the value of reading old books, right? Uh, mm. That that those are that because they do transport us to a different place, and that's really what you're trying to get across. I think in in this in this book that it's that that there's this vast wealth out there and we're just we're just kind of overlooking it and that that if we could would employ it we we could again use versus receive but we could use it to help uh, our own conversion our own our own ongoing conversion but also perhaps that of others who are not uh, who are not even looking for Christ really consciously. Yeah. And this kind of touches on, you know, the, the two parts, because I got the first section, which is the ancient literature, which is most of what we've been talking about thus far. But then I go into medieval literature, which is all the selections I've chosen are Christian. And of course, Dante's Divine Comedy is the, is the third section. Um, and all of these have a sort of alienness to them by virtue of being long ago in, in a different culture. But they give us some some different things. So as Christians reading, you know, the Greek myths or, you know, Oedipus Rex or something like that, you know, there's that encounter with human nature. Um, and there's also a sense of contrast to say, oh, well, I can see more clearly what, what Jesus Christ gives us by seeing what culture is like 
when he's not present. Okay, I see more clearly why we, we want to have emphasis on mercy. Okay. But then as we move to the medieval Christians, it's really interesting. And this is something that really came out in my, my teaching at, um, at Houston Christian. Medieval Christians had a much more integrated worldview than modern Christians typically do. Um, there's a real integration of imagination and, and reason. And so the way that they express their faith is in a way much more embodied, much more earthy and incarnational um, than, than often what we're used to. And I think it can be really exciting um, as, a, as a Christian and really helpful to enter into these, these ways of seeing the world that are genuinely and fully Christian, but are also really different. So one of, one of my favorites in this, in this part of the book is the poem mentioned before, The Dream of the Rude, which is the story of the crucifixion of Christ told from the point of view of the cross, it's a talking cross, and it takes place in a dream vision. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird poem. It's a great poem. And in this poem, the cross recounts um, how Christ, as a kind of a young warrior in the Germanic um, tradition, he's a young warrior and he strips himself as if for battle and climbs up onto the cross um, to be crucified. Now, again, this is a dream vision and the poet is he's very deliberately doing this. He's not, he's not you know, revising history, but what he's presenting in this image is the truth that Christ willed this. You know, he wasn't hauled off kicking and screaming. He chose to accept his death for us. He is a hero. He's the warrior who defeated death. And I vividly remember, you know, one of my students um, telling me that this had really just kind of revitalized his faith because in reading this poem, he realized that he had always thought of, of Christ as passive, you know, well, there he is, you know, he just sort of suffers the passion and it's all passive. It happens to him. And he didn't really see Jesus as being, you know, active or, or frankly, very interesting um, in that respect. He was, he was a lifelong Christian, um, but the, this was just sort of like, oh yeah, you know, okay, good Friday, et cetera. Yeah. But seeing this revisioning of it um, really brought home to him the drama of the crucifixion. Um, and it helped him to see more clearly the, the power of it. Um, that's very exciting. It's very exciting. And that's the kind of thing that this, the second and third sections of the book, I hope will really help readers to do. You know, in some ways, maybe a lot of ways, I, th I think that, that Christian medieval writings can be more challenging than even pre-Christian pagan writings, just for us to, and maybe I'm just speaking of for myself, to, to just sort of immediate, immediately relate to. Um, if, if I'm reading the, the Greeks, and maybe this is just because of my own diet, you know, as a, as a child reading and so forth, they make sense to me, right? I know, I know those stories. But you get into a lot of medieval writings, and even though they are Christian, they can be pretty weird, you know. We can, we we uh, we have this popular idea of you know of the dark ages, right? But that's uh, when we actually come face to face with it. It's it's a whole different ball game. Indeed, um, and I think part of it too. Part of it is I think that we are often exposed to the ancient literature as children. Certainly, I was. I you know I read the Greek myths from 
you know, when I was a little girl, um, got them in school, uh, and not so much the, uh, the, um, medieval literature. And, and partly I think it's, you know, anybody who went up through the public school system, um, it probably, you know, more so now even, but certainly even when I was a girl, it wasn't very likely that we're going to be reading really deeply Christian literature, at least very often, um, and so the medieval literature is just slightly shunted off. They're 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 a little too they're a little too devout for the tastes of the, the secular <laughs> world. Um, but but it's interesting how, in a way, you know, the, there's shifts in in emphasis because, for instance, I didn't do this poem in Tales of Faith, but another great medieval poem is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, mm -hmm, um, right. which Tolkien did a translation of. Excellent translation, by the way. Um, and you know, there was just a, a, a film, you know, drawing on that. Um, I've not seen the film. I, I can't comment whether it was any good. Um, but uh, but just this, there there are these really compelling images um, in medieval literature. I mean, Beowulf. I mean, Beowulf is just fantastic. Um, you have this you know this hero who's, who's fighting a monster, this monster Grendel, who you know uh, is coming up and eating these warriors, and Beowulf rips his arm off. Um, it's it's extremely gruesome, um, and I think sometimes it, it can surprise readers because they they have this sort of stereotype image that, of course, medieval writers were all like neat and prim and prissy, and like wait a second, what did, did Beowulf really rip off Grendel's arm? No way. And then he, he fights Grendel's mother, um, and then he fights a dragon. The dragon's awesome. Um, so it's it's really quite gripping. Um, and like this is really this is really good stuff. And I, I think it's also a helpful reminder, you know, to, to Christian artists, like, you know, we should tell good stories. <laughs> oh, ab yes, absolutely, absolutely. That that's one of the problems I think that we have with. Um, with modern Christian, and I'll put quotation marks around art, and that's not just uh, visual arts, but but literature, uh, Christian movies and television are often awful, but they're all awful in this this kind of um, predictable way, and that they're very um, they're very pedantic. Um, they uh, they're uh, puritanical very often. Uh, in a way that you would you you never saw really I won't say never I mean there were those stories too but uh, of the great literature of the past it was it was very visceral it was it was authentically growing out of the culture rather than simply attempting to convey this apologetics message and I think that that's really in a lot of ways what your book's trying to get us to see. Yeah, I mean, in a way, the the modern Christian writers again, I put a Christian in these little little quotation marks. I mean, I want to give them credit for good intentions. Um, they're trying to do something wholesome in a in a literary and cultural context where there's so much that is just poisonous and toxic and just awful. Um, so, you know, God bless them for trying, but they're they're not really, I think, being particularly effective. Um, because they're they're too nervous in a sense. They're not trusting in being able to tell a good story, um, and in a way, you know, I think we have to be really grounded in our faith, and then have the confidence that, well, if I really am, you know, truly discipled, truly grounded in the faith, then everything I say and everything I write um, is going to be coming out of that 
of that groundedness. Um, and I think that more than anything else really is, is the source of the, of the, you know, moral power of writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, people are always asking me, you know, who's the next C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien, or how do I become the next one? And my answer is, you know, grow in personal holiness and learn your craft. Right. Those two things. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, if you look at somebody um, who strikes me as, as having done that very well, as somebody like Flannery O'Connor, of course, who's a, who's a, uh, hero of, of, of word on fire. Uh, but she is somebody who, uh, was writing in a very different context from Lewis or Tolkien, although I guess a little later than them, but she was grounded in her faith, but was writing not in a prissy kind of way at all. Right. I mean, just so much so that it's off putting to a lot of people. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that you know O'Connor is somebody who has broken out of you know the sort of Christian subculture. You know, Christian Christians read her, but a lot of non-Christians read her. She is a she's a notable author in American literature because she's really great. Um, right. Now that doesn't again that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to like what she writes. I. I feel like I'm, you know, he, first Dante, now O'Connor. I, I don't like Flannery O'Connor. I, I myself don't care for the Southern Gothic subgenre. Um, I'm not from the South. It doesn't resonate with me. I'm not really part of the audience that she's really resonating with. That's okay. And I think that's part of what's, what is actually part of O'Connor's genuine power. She didn't say, oh, how can I make a message that's going to appeal to every American Christian? Well, I better, I better moderate my style because that's going to offend some people in, I don't know, Wisconsin. Um, I'm not offended, but I just don't care for it. Uh, no, she says, I, I want to work the way I feel called to work with my gifts and my interests and my personality. And she writes these stark and vivid and disturbing stories that are really powerful. Um, and they're not going to be to everyone's taste. Just the same way, you know, Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, which I adore. I think it's, you know, one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. But I get that not everybody appreciates fantasy. Not everybody enjoys fantasy. And if that's the case, it's okay. You know, right. don't don't dismiss Tolkien because, oh, fantasy, I don't like that. Just say, hey, I don't care for fantasy. Um, and I think that... Well, again, that comes back to appreciation versus enjoyment. I have such appreciation for O'Connor, even though I don't personally enjoy enjoy the books or the stories that much. And I think even if you don't enjoy fantasy, um, I think you know part of my work has been to show how much we should appreciate Tolkien as a literary artist of genius um, because of, the, of what he's doing. And he's again, he didn't try to write for everybody. Um, he even wrote a little, he wrote a little um, rhyme about Lord of the Rings. He said, um, the Lord of the Rings is one of those things. If you like it, you do. If you don't, then you boo. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that that's important to, to understand and to embrace. And that is that great art, again, whatever the genre, visual uh, novels, whatever, Great art is going to be particular, and it's going to be divisive. Um, it's going to be off-putting to some people. Some people just aren't going to like it. But I think 
in order for something ultimately to be great, it has to be that way in some way, that you can't have generic greatness. You have to have particular greatness. Exactly. And O'Connor found her genre, and she was she's the most Flannery O'Connor of them all, right? So, And Tolkien is the most Tolkien of them all. I mean, that... There, there are many imitators of both, in mm. fact, but they they tower above everybody else um, in what they were doing because they were doing it so authentically. And I think that 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 authenticity maybe is what's lacking in a lot of modern Christian art. Uh, it's just not uh, it's not particular. It's not unique. It's uh, it's bland so often. I agree. Well, let me ask you about, speaking of Tolkien, let me ask you about your upcoming book that uh, I understand is is at the press, and uh, perhaps we can look for it in 2023, and that is a book called Tolkien's Faith. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I'm very excited about this book. So the title is Tolkien's Faith, A Spiritual Biography, and it will be coming out from Word on Fire Academic, indeed, in 2023, in the fall of 2023. Um, in time for the 50th anniversary of Tolkien's death, because um, 2023 is an anniversary year. And this book is, as it says in the subtitle, it's a spiritual biography. And surprisingly, there is not anything like this. Um, there are various biographies of Tolkien, um, but there's none that really attends to his faith in detail. And that's what I have done here, um, really looking at you know, what did he believe and how was his faith shaped? How did it grow over time? And this book really came organically out of my research, you know, into Tolkien's life as I was working in Tolkien's modern reading, and then just sort of following up the question of, well, how did he become, you know, the man that that wrote the Lord of the Rings, who, who you know, the, this work that he said was a fundamentally Christian and Catholic work, and it has been it, tremendously exciting because Tolkien's faith journey was so much more interesting um, than I think anybody has really paid much attention to. Um, you know, we kind of take him for granted, Christians take him for granted that, you know, he was a devout Christian, he's a devout Catholic, um, but not necessarily realizing that he, you know, he was a, he was a convert actually, as a boy, but still as a convert. He had many opportunities when he could have abandoned his faith um, and indeed, you know, had a lot of motivation to do it. Um, he had two dif different crises of faith um, in, in his life. Um, he had a lot of you know, struggles and, and um, tough times, and his faith grows. Um, it's tested, and it gets stronger, and it gets richer and deeper. It's, it's not a sort of static, you know, okay, here we go. It's what I believe, and I'm done. It's a really a, a narrative of, of growth um, through I mean, he was an orphan. Um, he went. He he fought in the First World War. Um, he had his sons fighting in the Second World War. I mean, he he went through a lot. And then also just looking at his um, cultural context, which is, you know, again, he's so globally popular that it can be easy to forget that you know, he lived and worked in a very specific place, and really his his life is formed in two particular places, Birmingham, where he had his, his youth, and Oxford, where he spent most of his adult life. And, you know, looking at what did it mean 
to be, well, first of all, to be a Catholic in a largely Anglican world. Well, to be a Christian in, a, in an increasingly secular world, to be a Catholic in a largely Protestant Anglican world. But then what did it mean to be an English Catholic? You know, English Catholics, you know, live and are formed in a context very different from American Catholics because they have, you know, the history of massive and severe persecution. I mean, in Tolkien's own life, Catholics didn't have full civil rights, you know, until, you know, until he was an adult. Um, it was, it, the effects lasted that long. Yeah, that's hard for us to even process, I think. I don't think we can even grasp it. Yeah, and it shapes the experience. Um, you know, to be a Catholic in England was to be a marginalized minority with actual disadvantages. There was a cost socially, economically, professionally. Um, and so that in itself is really, it, it really shapes how we understand Tolkien's faith journey. Um, and then also to look at, you know, the, the influence of the Oratorians, which has turned out to be a major theme of the book because he was effectively raised at the Birmingham Oratory, the Oratory, the Congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. Um, and this ended up having a profound influence on his spiritual life, um, on his whole life. And that, again, most people, when I talk to them, like, hey, do you know who the Oratorians are? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm very much looking forward to that because uh, I, my uh, confirmation saint is is uh, John Henry Newman. So uh, obviously a, a connect, a very strong connection there uh, with with the environment that he grew up in. Excellent. Yeah. So anyway, this all of this, um, as you can see, I'm very excited about it. It has been great fun to write, um, and there's a big picture gallery. It's gonna be. It's gonna be. I think. I hope people will find it to be a, a really a fresh look at Tolkien and really put, you know, him in a sort of a three-dimensional picture. Um, such an interesting person. Um, that's that's the book's coming out next year. Well, Holly, you keep writing interesting books. We may have to may have to have you back and talk about that one too. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, people can can uh, go back, as I said, and listen to episode eight where you talk about. Um, our in our earlier conversation you were talking about tolkien's modern readings this conversation tales of faith a guide to sharing gospel through literature both of those from word on fire academic as will be your forthcoming book so we i, I do very much look forward to that and i know it's going to be uh, it's going to be fascinating excellent well thank you for being on yet again and uh with you know, with prospects of even more conversations in the future well it has been my pleasure Thank you.